socio-political issues. One man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. This is You Don't Have to Yell with your host. Wait a minute. Where's Dan? Tune in and find out on a special episode of You Don't Have to Yell. Hey everybody, this is producer Jason here for a special episode where we turn the tables and I interview host Dan Sally. In addition to hosting over 70 episodes of the You Don't Have to Yell podcast, Dan has a proven background in stand-up comedy, including appearing on the television network Comedy Central and sharing the stage with Kevin Nealon and Jim Gaffigan. He's also a history major, which means he knows the mistakes American politics has made in the past and has practical suggestions to get the country on track for the future. Dan, Sally, welcome to your own show. <laughs> wow, man, that was pretty good. <laughs> How does it feel to be on the other side of the interview table, as they say? It's kind of weird. I got to tell you, man, it's yeah. kind of weird. Like I'm, I feel like I should be asking you stuff, but I'm just going <laughs> to sit back and let you grab the wheel. And well, good. Well, 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 thanks for doing this. It'll be fun. And by the way, during the closing credits of the past few shows, you've mentioned borrowing uh, editorial advisor Adam's ATM card. And my question is, do I get to borrow it at some point? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that was so. You know what happened? This is years ago when we were in. Because we went to college together, and I was going in town originally just to get, I can't remember what I was going to go get. I was going to get like a six pack or something like that. I can't remember what it was. And he asked me to buy a pack of smokes for him and gave me his debit card. And so I took his debit card and went into town and then met up with some friends and then went out. And one thing led to another, and I was like gone all night with his debit card. And this is so, and this is of course we're in college. So we're already broke and I've got like his one form, the one thing he can use to access money and I've got it. And I just disappeared. And then apparently like he came into my room at like 10, you know, sometime the next morning and I was asleep and he just took it then. But I felt really bad about that, but he really took it in stride. So bottom line, uh, Jason, is if you ever happen to absentmindedly take Adam's debit card, you can expect that he's going to be pretty good humored about it, at least for 24 hours. I haven't pushed too far beyond then, but good. I was going to ask him if I can borrow it because after buying Christmas presents, my wallet is pretty thin. So yeah, yeah. I would say you are, you, you, you are uh, amongst the majority there. So it's the end of 2020. (sighs) Maybe we can all breathe a bit lighter. Uh, it's the holidays. Hopefully people's moods are are a bit brighter. With your background in comedy, I wanted to get your take on the state of comedy today, given the political and climate that we're in. But first, why did you get into comedy? Do you know what's funny? I actually knew I wanted to get into stand-up when you and I went to see Bill Cosby together this is pre-sexual assault allegations folks yes extramarital activities exactly yeah yeah so this is like this is back before you know bill cosby was 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 creepy before he put the roofies in the in the jello pudding yeah Yeah. well he was putting it in i think that's like during when he was doing it but but we just didn't know you know just little side side note do you notice like nobody had any idea that bill cosby had kind of a lazy eye until the allegations took place. Like, did you notice like you never saw pictures no. of him? 
yeah, like all of a sudden, apparently, and I don't, I, I don't, I've, I haven't researched this at all. All I know is like the instant the 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 trial, the instant he went to trial, right? All of a sudden, every picture just shows him with this lazy eye, and I've got to imagine like back when he was, you know, at the top of his game, everybody just avoided that angle of his face to make him look good. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden they were just like, oh yeah, let's just make him look like a total creep now. And so they just kind of <laughs> like, yeah. So that's that's an aside. But yeah, so you and I, let's see, your parents had tickets to see Bill Cosby. Your dad couldn't go. And so I went in place. And I remember distinctly sitting there watching him and being like, I want to be like that guy. And then after that, it was a couple of years later, my brother and I would stay up late and we'd watch stand up on TV. And I just really loved it. And I was always I was always able to make people laugh. Then finally decided to get on stage in Boston and did it twice, was terrible, had horrible stage fright, got off stage both times, just bombed both times uh, and didn't go on again for like a year or two and then moved out to San Francisco and was there i didn't have any friends it was just me and my brother and you know my roommates and whatever and then finally decided to go to uh stand up comedy college i don't even know if it still exists or not they taught things like joke writing and uh you know i don't know all this other stuff i can't say i got the bulk of my education in stand up at that class i would not say taking a class is a good way to learn necessarily learn learn how to do it cuz you just have to perform you know, you just have to get out there constantly. But what it did do is it tapped me into a whole network of stand-up comics and open mics. And at that point, I just started doing open mics every night of the week. Like every, we're talking like every night of the week, five to six nights a week, I was doing stand-up. And there was even this one open mic that took place in a laundromat. And <laughs> I would, I would do my laundry there specifically because then I could get, you know, stage time while I was, uh, while I was doing it. Did they give you a discount at least? Maybe it didn't cost 50 cents and only cost 25? No, never, never. This is, this is the other thing too. It's like, and I don't know if people actually aspire to do stand-up anymore or not. Like, but back when I started, you would do these open mics and the way, you know, the way that the open mic was marketed is it was like, we're going to bring... 20 like borderline alcoholics in your establishment to do open mics and they're going to buy beer from you. And so it was always, it was always on an off night. So these open mics always took place on like Mondays and Tuesdays and you know, whatever, like the weekends were actually days, nights off when you were an open micer because you know, Uh. nobody was going to, nobody was going to pay you to do it. So you just kind of like, you know, you'd might go to like, at that point you might go to like a legit like weekend show and watch somebody perform. But yeah. So the, so the lesser talent or or the up and coming talent, I should say gets like the Monday slot when when nobody goes. Yeah. Yeah. And you can use the phrase lesser talent because for the most part, like a good chunk, it was terrible. Like they were terrible shows. And this is the other thing, right? So they have them in these bars or restaurants, basically like any place where you can set up a mic and stand and talk, people would do an open mic. So like the laundromat, right? Yeah. But it wasn't like these were shows people went to, like to watch comedy. So what would happen is there'd be the odd poor bystander who maybe just wanted to come in and have a drink with a friend and, and talk. And then all of a sudden, a stand-up show would show up. 
and just ruin their <laughs> ruin their time out, you know, because it's like <laughs> a bunch of hacks working through stuff. I could imagine being on stage and making people laugh is fulfilling. Like, was that the motivation? Just I want to make people laugh. I don't know. It, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I just knew I was. I knew I could be better at it than most of the people I saw. That's the truth. I knew. I knew for a fact, and it was like the only thing I was really good at. Too. That's the other. That's the other thing. Like, I was a terrible student. Couldn't play sports. I, I can barely throw a baseball today. I wasn't a star at anything ever, and I just knew I could be better than where I was. Like I was working a job I didn't really care for. You know, I I graduated college with like the perfunctory C, you know, and I knew I was smarter than that, but I just, it, you know, I don't know. It just, it, nothing ever clicked. And so uh, that was the one thing I could go to and just do well at with stand-up, you know, you you can't lose focus. Like, you're freaking out, first off, because everybody hates public speaking. You know, everybody hates... Get, like, getting up in front of a crowd is one of the scariest things you can do if you haven't done it before. And they're demanding something, you know? And so you've kind of got to, like, bring it, you know? And, and that just... It all... It was just kind of a place where I thrived. It's really do or die, because you have to. Either, oh yeah! Either, either you 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 walk off the stage in humiliation ha- halfway through because you can't handle it, or you persevere and and push through it. I took a public speaking class, and mm-hmm. there was a we all had to get up get up in front of the class, and it's just a classroom of 20, 20 people. One person, this guy, I remember he was wearing light blue jeans, very light colored blue blue jeans, uh-huh. and he started doing his speech. But a minute into it, his pants, put it this way, his light blue jeans became darker. He started, uh, he started peeing himself right there. And he kept going. His, his, his spot, the spot is growing and growing. And, and he kept going. I'm thinking, oh, my God, this guy's amazing. And at the end of it, he just kind of looked around. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, what's this guy going to say? What would I say in this situation? And he, and he just kind of shrugged and said, eh, what are you going to do? And then he and he walked away and and, he, and excused himself and went next door and bought a new pair of pants. You know, I'm like like I've learned so much from that guy. You know, yeah, man, that's stand up right there. That is stand up. Just wetting yourself in front of a because because even doesn't matter like how good you get too. You're gonna find a crowd that hates you. Like and and you and them. It's like you and them are just not gonna get along. And it's just your job to get through it and ideally maybe at least like have them not follow you out of the place afterwards. I've always thought it takes guts to be a comic. I mean, lots of people perform on stage. I mean, musicians, actors, dancers, Mm -hmm. but comedy seems to be, tell me if you were to agree, comedy seems to be the riskiest in terms of damage to your self-confidence. Like I've oh, been yeah. in bands. I've been in bands where the audience didn't clap or didn't cheer after a song. And it doesn't feel very good, but you quickly get over it and move on to the next song. But with comedy, if people don't laugh at your at your bit and the whole place is silent, that seems to cut deeper than a band who doesn't get a cheer, does it? Oh yeah. Like you die alone. Right. Like, yeah, because if you're in a band, right? 
whether they liked the music or not, like the song was still played. Like at least you're up there playing along, you know, at least you're up there doing something. Like stand up is the one art form that requires a reaction. Mm. Like there's if you if people aren't laughing, it's not comedy. Or yeah, if, you, you know, so I, it's I like could, I could be in my bedroom playing the guitar to myself and you know and be happy with that, but you can't tell yourself a joke. I mean, no, that's it. Like it requires a crowd. It requires them to respond. And if they're not responding, then it's not happening. It's not comedy. It's somebody just bombing, you know, it's somebody eating it publicly alone. Like I said, yeah, I got to a point where I was, you know, I was doing all these shitty little open mics and driving all over the place, like to do them. And you'd be amazed how far I would drive just for like five minutes on a stage in front of people who didn't want to hear me tell jokes. And your goal is to get there and get these people who didn't come to laugh to laugh, who are comedians too. So they probably heard a bunch of jokes. They probably heard some of your jokes, you know, at that point I'd moved back to Boston and I was doing an open mic and this one club owner here, Rick Jenkins, who ran, runs a place called the comedy studio where a lot of people, a lot of, uh, you know, folks who moved out of Boston and did, you know, went on to do other things. They, uh, you know, they, they all kind of went through there. That was their home base. A lot of comics who are like, who are from Boston coming in here to do work. Like, Bill Burr would drop by, uh, Louis CK, of course, before the incident, he would drop by and do stuff. It was like, it was a place where it was like a comedian's comedy club. And so at any rate, so I was at this open mic, I did my set and this, the club owner, you know, Jenkins came and told me to come by and do a set. And then I just became a regular there. And that club was the club that, uh, that, uh, you know, eventually got me on Comedy Central because that was where, you know, television talent, you know, the, the scouts would come when they were in Boston would come through. And so that got me my TV, you know, my TV credit. That was your, um, your big break as it were. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, but so, but that was all from just like these, you know, that was all from just these, like just grinding it, you know, day after day. I imagine it's similar to, musicians and this is the reason why I got out of the music industry too which is I imagine as a as a stand up you're either constantly it's 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 one of two things you're either constantly on the road living out of a suitcase trying to get your name out there while earning very low dollars or you're at the top of your industry doing HBO specials and making millions there's very little in between is that correct there's yeah there's zero there is zero in between. And, you know, for me, what happened is I had my television break right when my daughter was born. So, you know, or uh, the year my daughter was born, you know, once you have that TV credit, you know, that's the point when I should have moved to New York or LA and started working there. But yeah, it still would have been another maybe, you know, five to 10 years of just scraping by. And you kind yeah. of have to decide, like, are you going to drag your family along for the ride, or you know, are you going to tr- are you going to kind of let them have a life too? And to be real too, it's like you could even be really well known. You know, you could do a lot of stuff you're really proud of and still not have a cent. You know, even when yeah. you're even like like you know, you talking about musicians. You know, there are lots of musicians out there that have like platinum records and haven't made any money. You oh, yeah. know, 
right? And so it's kind of like there's there's that element too. So um, I don't know, you know, it was it wasn't easy to walk. It, it was tough to walk away from because I was. It was the one thing that I just was like really good at. Regarding influences, mm-hmm. who was your influences either when either when you were a kid or when you were doing it. Uh, professionally, or even even to talk about now, even though you're out of it now, who do you think is really on the top of their game now? Yeah. Um, so, you know, now, like, I think, like, Bill Burr is really up there. David Chappelle. I haven't, I haven't watched a lot of new stand-up, so I couldn't tell. Like, I kind of, like, just totally just kind of shut, just shut the door. Like, once I was out, I was out. I couldn't follow it and not be in it, you know? And it's just like, like I'll never go to another comedy show again. Cause I just can't. Yeah. Cause I just can't go and watch somebody do what I want to do. Huh? So you still want to do it? Well, I don't know. Like now part of you, a part of you. Like I, I, it's kind of like, it's kind of like being a boxer. Like, you know, if you're not training, if you're not always in it, you're really just getting punched in the face. Like that's kind of what it is, you know? And so there's no sense in me doing it because I can't dedicate the time to do it the way I want to do it. But I also can't sit and watch somebody else just kill it. Like I just derive no enjoyment out of that because I, I want, because I want to be there. Right. And, um, and if I can't do it, I just have to shut it out. It's like being an, it's like being an alcoholic, you know, like you can't, you you can't just like have a casual yeah. beer with friends. You either have to like drink a twelve pack in one setting, or not do it. And that's like I am I am I am definitely that's my relationship with comedy, and um, and so but yeah, but like I I do think like it's interesting. Like you look at the comedians who really like are legendary, like you know Carlin or you know Richard Pryor. I mean Bill Cosby, Louis C.K. Obviously, there's some controversial figures I'm throwing out there, but sure you know, for the most part, like a lot of them, all of them wrote new material every year, right? And would work on new material. But Louis C.K. and Bill Burr specifically are two who say there was a point in their career where they threw out their act. And just said, what? Like they had this reliable act that, um, that, that they would do uh, whenever they performed. And I like, you know, I spent five years, it took me five years to get on TV. I spent five years crafting what turned into like a five minute television set. Mm-hmm. And granted, there were a lot of jokes that got thrown out and pruned along the way, but that was like a greatest hits album, right? Now, these guys were every year creating a greatest hits album that was an hour, right? Like a, so, like a, set, like a set list. Like a set list. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But these guys would start you know, the beginning of the year and have an hour by the end of the year of like quality stuff. And the way they did it is they had this, again, they did what I did, which is, you know, they started out and they had this stuff that worked and they kind of relied on that. And then they had their state, you know, they had their sort of like their jokes that like always reliably crushed. And so they were pulling those out. And then eventually they were like, I'm stalled out and I just need to burn this all to the ground and just kind of bomb. And that's what they did. And they went, but what happened in that process is they had to dig so much deeper to get their material that they really got to who they were, you know, and they really got into like the basis, darkest level of their, of, of who they are. Right. And if you listen to Louis CK or you listen to Bill Burr or Pryor, 
you know, to an extent, George Carlin, George Carlin was really prolific, wasn't too personal, but, you know, they kind of get to this base level of truth and, um, and it's just, it's so much deeper than I think a lot of the surface level funny that you get out of just a newer comedian, you know? Yeah. And I mean, half you, the time when you're listening to Bill Burr, it sounds like he's on your, he's on a psychologist couch half the time. He's just taught, he's just riffing because he's gotten in touch with that voice. You know, he dug, he, he dug so deep and he's in touch with that voice and, and that's what you're hearing. And so he doesn't need to like think, oh, is that funny and kind of craft it? Like hmm. he's got this idea and he's just expressing himself now. And so he's somebody who I really, you know, I really kind of admire that ethic. So I wanted to ask you about the state of comedy today, given the politically correct climate that we're in. My theory is that comedy not all of it, but a lot of it frequently stems from some kind of negativity that the comic flips on its head and then makes funny. For example, you mentioned Bill Cosby earlier. So um, his say what you want about his extracurricular activities, but his bits from the 70s and 80s were hilarious. And his, his routine, The Dentist, is about the horror and pain of a dentist visit. And then, so it stems from something negative. And then Jerry Seinfeld had a joke about how he let his parakeet out of the cage the first time and he broke his neck, which is terrible. But he said the parakeet flew towards a mirror and on the wall. And, and you could almost understand why the parakeet thought there was another room and wanted to fly into it. But you would think he would avoid crashing into the oncoming parakeet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so both examples show that the root cause is something negative, like someone getting hurt or a bad situation. And, and in today's climate of outrage Olympics, where even Christmas songs are considered offensive, how can comedy function when certain people have lost their sense of humor? Yeah, it's it's so it's funny. It, I'm, I'm, I was really glad that you want to talk about this because I've, I've thought about this a lot and, and I, I kind of look, there are three buckets of comedy that I find really interesting right now. Um, I think the, the first one is there are a lot of voices that we haven't traditionally heard from who we're hearing from now who are making us more aware of things that that exist in America that maybe we ignored. So, you know, years prior comedy was like a white guy's job as most jobs were in America for better or for worse, you know? Yeah. Um, but you'd have, you know, so you had your black comedian, you had your female comedian, you had your gay comedian, and then a bunch of white guys. And that's kind of, and even when I was doing stand up to an extent, that's what it was. And now you, you hear from a lot of different, people who in a lot of different voices and opinions you wouldn't otherwise hear from. So a great example, I don't know if you saw the video that came out recently. It was from Saturday night live. Um, and, and it was, it was basically the, 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 the joke was how moms kind of never get anything for Christmas or they get one, they get one gift. In this case, the woman got a robe. Did you, did you see this video or, or no? Unfortunately I didn't. There's actually a super important message in there, which is that, you know, for those of you who aren't married or, you know, maybe don't don't have a chance to observe this, like pretty much Christmas is in the majority of households, the wife kind of gets everything. So buys gifts for parents, siblings, 
kids, you know, everything, right? Husband. And then gets like maybe one gift, you know, <laughs> like, like, or, 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 and, you know, their stockings aren't filled and everything like that. And so the wife I, does I, all the work in other that's words. That's it. That's yeah. it. And I, I found yeah. that interesting because that, that spurred a lot of conversations about, you know, the way women feel about Christmas and the way women feel about the fact they do all this work. And I think that's important. I don't think we would have heard that uh, before. And I think there's a lot of comedians who are, you know, uh, expressing opinions as, you know, people of color or whatever else who are, who are, you know, out there that maybe weren't out there before and their opinions are being heard. Um, and, and comedy really exists to be able to talk about things that are uncomfortable. You know, comedy makes it because you, yeah, yeah. Well, because the whole idea is like, if you're doing it right, you're laughing at something that otherwise wouldn't, you wouldn't laugh at. You're laughing at something painful, but what it allows you to do is it allows you to acknowledge the existence of these things in a non-threatening way. And then that can spur some very serious, meaningful conversations afterwards. You also brought up how, how do you say things without offending people? And there's, and there's kind of another branch of comedy that exists. I wouldn't call it on the opposite side, but is sort of pushing that, that idea that, you know, the whole concept of cancel culture and everything like Bill Burr, especially is like, is, seems to be, you know, walking that line where it's kind of like there are a lot of people saying now you can't say certain things. Right. Right. And so Bill, Bill Burr is one person who I've heard who's kind of pushing that agenda and kind of questioning that. And I think it's, and, and again, it's comedy. So it's okay. If you look at maybe somebody like Lenny Bruce back in the fifties. And for mm-hmm. those of you who aren't familiar, you know, yeah. was somebody who was shut down, uh, for uh, profanity, right? Where Lenny Bruce was really pushing the conservatism of the 1950s. That was Lenny Bruce was Howard Stern's number one uh, influence. Yeah, yeah, and so and so he was somebody who was sort of tweaking social mores, and I think we have to understand that there is just as much of a social more um, in woke culture as there is in any other culture. And, um, and it's not to say that one is right or one is wrong, but it is to say that like, you know, the nature of art, the nature of comedy is to provoke thought and, and you provoke thought by challenging people's, people's mores. And so, you know, if your moral compass is such that maybe cancel culture resonates with you, then you're going to be offended by it. The third bucket is one that I'm not a fan of, which is, you know, there's there's been a there's like been a saying in comedy that it in the Trump administration comedy's written itself and it absolutely 100% true you know um but the there's there's definitely like there is there there is a glaring and I'm going to say this I'm going to say this with the understanding that I, I don't. I, if I could find a better way to phrase it, I would. But there is a a a a branch of televised comedy that really reflects this like metropolitan elitist view. And so, like you know, for example, like sending somebody from the Daily Show to go make fun of people at Trump rallies. It's just like mm. it's an 
it's an easy laugh, yes, but does it it's cheap? It is. It's totally cheap. It's because to- first off, you can go anywhere and find dumb people. I am, tr- you know, twenty minute drive from Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Some of the smartest people in the world. There's probably some dude in his dorm room, like building a time machine right now. Right? I guarantee you. F- you. F- landline this thing we own we paid for this thing <laughs> okay. and it's just for telemarketers so we're just going to sit and wait for this bullshit to stop so i could go to i could go to mit guarantee you i could find a dumb person there you know somewhere on campus right so there are dumb people there are people worthy of ridicule everywhere and i think the thing that bothers me and this happens a lot in the daily show specifically is it's like reinforcing this uh, metropolitan liberal viewpoint. And I don't think that that's valuable comedy at all because all it does is it just kind of like it, it, it reinforces your belief system. It doesn't challenge it. It doesn't do anything to challenge the people who don't think like you do. So what's the point? Like what, like you're just jerking each other off at that point. It's elitist. That's exactly what it is. We would hope that it's okay to say certain things under the guise of comedy. But then Jamie Foxx did a bit on Saturday Night Live Mm -hmm. uh, that had the line, pit bulls can be cantankerous, and got hate mail from the pit bull community, (laughs) apparently there is such a thing, saying that he he pit bull shamed them. There's always somebody out there who's going to be offended. And... And... That's not, it doesn't make it wrong. You know, I think, I think the thing, the thing for me and, and kind of a rule I adopted that I borrowed from a, another co- comedian in, in Boston named DJ Hazard, who was like a Boston legend, um, was I was never going to tell a joke I wouldn't tell if those types of people were in the audience. So I wouldn't tell a joke at the expense of a group of people a you know specific subset of people that I wouldn't say to their face or that I wouldn't feel comfortable saying when they were there right right yeah and so I dropped some jokes because of that and and so I think there's there's um but there's a difference between telling a joke that somebody's offended by or that offends somebody's sensibilities and telling a joke at somebody else's expense right I mean I mean Steve Carell Steve Carell mentioned that. He couldn't have made, although I guess The Office is coming back in some capacity, but he said, he, he said previously, you can't, you can't make The Office today. And that just ended in 2013. That was somewhat, yeah. somewhat recently ended. And Robert Downey Jr. doing blackface in Tropic Thunder. Hilarious. But he, but he said, you can't do that today. I mean, it's, it's a tricky one because, like, again, you get back to there were, there were a lot of voices that were kind of like, diminished you know for years and when somebody isn't heard they just push harder to be heard they don't disappear you know and they push harder and they push harder and they push harder and when that door is open all that force just keeps going you know because that force is expecting resistance and now there's no more resistance so that pendulum will swing further than maybe it should and so I just, I think that's what we're experiencing now. There are a whole bunch of voices that haven't been heard. Um, it will eventually reach some sense of equilibrium. But in the meantime, you know, the role of comedy really is to continue to challenge all of the things, you know, everything. 
We're continuing to transition from comedy into politics here, getting further into politics. Talk about the show for a, for a moment. The original goal of YDHTY was to promote campaign finance reform because you saw, you saw that as, at the time, the number one problem in politics. Since then, your focus has shifted. Could you talk a little bit about that shift in focus? Let's see. So I started this when John McCain died. And I, I felt like John McCain was a man of principle, you know, love him or hate him. He was somebody who had principles and brought them to Washington. And I thought, you know, people don't do the same thing. If other people don't step up to fill his shoes, we're going to have nothing but Trump. And I had always felt the most corrupting influence in American politics was campaign finance reform. And I really felt that that was the root of a lot of our problems with government and a lot of our problems with polarization. And so as I started to, this is even before I recorded the, an episode, by the way, I started doing my research. And as I started digging into campaign finance laws around the, around the world, what I realized was that when you look at the countries that rank the highest in terms of things like voter satisfaction, electoral integrity, transparency, all those things, they don't differ all that much from the United States in terms of their campaign finance laws. They, they exist to an extent, but you know, there's not this great uh, gulf between their system and ours. Um, the, the biggest difference in campaign finance laws in Europe specifically, and again, you know, uh, democracies, other democracies throughout the world, is that we're the only country that has such an explicit um, hard-coded, irrevocable right to free speech that it makes it very difficult for you to define what is campaigning and what isn't, right? Whereas in yeah. Germany, you can say like, you can't campaign for, you know, you can't campaign up until six or six weeks. Or I don't know what the figure is, but they effectively can say you can't campaign, which means running ads, whatever, right? You just can't do that in the United States, nor do I think we'd want to, right? Now, but the second thing they have, and something that I found far more interesting, is they all had proportional system of, systems of representation. So they all had systems where if the Green Party uh, got 10% of the popular vote, 10% of parliament is green. And, and I started to look, and if you look at the systems that do the best and that have done the best in the last 10 years, they're all systems of proportional representation. Um, and so I really started to look at the electoral system in the United States and realize that this was the big part of the problem because, you know, the U.S. is unique in that there are chambers of government that are designed to be disproportionate. So the Senate's a great example, right? The Senate is designed to give every state the same number of votes regardless of population. That's it's that's its function. We can debate whether that's a good function or not, but that's its function. The Electoral College exists to make it so a president has to win in the majority of states and not just win the majority of votes. Again, we can debate whether that's a good system or not, but that's the system. It's working as functioned, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the House should be the proportionate body. So the House of Representatives should reflect the popular vote, and it doesn't. Um, it, there are times when it is more even. I think right now the current Congress is more evenly representative of the popular vote. Um, there are times when it's out of whack by like two or three percentage points. Um, but if you go state by state, it's a much different picture. 
And, uh, and an example I always cite is, you know, again, my home state of our, well, our home state of Massachusetts, where, you know, reliably 30% of voters cast ballots for Republicans, knowing that they don't have a chance of getting anybody in office, right? So you have these orphaned Republicans in Massachusetts who can't be heard because of the district-based system we use to bring people into office. Um, conversely, where you are right now in North Carolina, 2018 midterms, 50% voted Democrat, 50% Republican, 75% of the congressional delegation was Republican. So huh. it is a, it is a, yeah, it's a system that does not, the House of Representatives is not working as functioned or is not working as designed. It is not reflecting the the, the popular vote. Um, and, and the reason for this is that, again, when we get to electoral systems, Germany, for example, has a, a fully proportional system of representation where what they will do is they'll assign a certain number of seats to the people who won first place in a district and then assign what they call compensatory seats which effectively make up for the proportion of people who might have voted green or might have voted for some other party or whatever, and and puts them in office as well. So their votes are counted. Um, in the US and you know the UK and Canada, for example, we have what's called a first past the post system, which means you just have to win one more vote than second place to take office. And the result of that is you have a system that can, you have a system where a minority of voters who are well organized can ultimately run the run the table. Couldn't that be the same thing though, under the under the correct scenario with proportional representation? It, well, in theory, but they'd have to win a hundred percent of the votes. That's the thing. So do they though? Imagine three numbers in your head. If a large party wins 40% of the seats, a medium party wins 30%, mm -hmm. and a small party wins 20, mm -hmm. so 40, 30, 20, mm -hmm. that gives the small party the balance of power because they could side with one of the other parties to form a majority. In other words, the, mm -hmm. the smallest 20% could side with the 40%. Now there's 60 and, yep. oh. and, and the medium 30 doesn't stand a chance. And then on the other, on the other side, the, the small 20% could side with the medium 30 to equal 50 mm -hmm. and they still went over the 40 as well. So therefore it can be a, it can be a small party, not the voters that really decides who wins the election. No. Well, so the only thing is that both parties can't engage in compromises that would be unacceptable to their voters, to their base. If you look at what typically happens in multi-party systems and especially proportional systems, there are coalition governments. And, and typically they always break down into like, there's, there's, there's usually two major parties in any system. It's just kind of the way, because people don't care that much, you know, or, or at <laughs> least, or, or ideally government should be serving the bulk of the voters, right? And the bulk of the voters are typically served by a left of center and right of center platform for the most part. So the majority of, so logic would dictate that in any system, you are going to have two major parties in some form with a number of minor parties, you know, let's call it, you know, three or four uh, minor parties beyond that. Um, and, and the major parties generally represent the bulk of the voters. And yes, the, the minor parties serve 
as a way to ally themselves with one of these major parties in a way that moves their agenda forward. So, you know, a great example, if we take a look at the Democratic Party today, right? It's really like at least two parties. You've got sort of the the left kind of Bernie, uh, AOC branch of the party that where, uh, for lack of a better phrasing, let's call it more more socialist or more government uh, intervention is wanted, you know, there's universal basic income, there's a big focus on renewable energy, you know, these are things that are uh, further to the left than your average uh, American voter. Yeah, Um, it's kind of like center left versus extreme left, aka socialists, basically. Bingo, bingo, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so you've got, and and then of course, you've got the, the, the Biden camp, which is still kind of nested in that Union working class ethos, you know, Um, and on the flip side, on the Republican, I mean, the Republican Party is interesting because there's no more. There's like these rare moderates. You have like Charlie Baker here in Massachusetts or um, Governor Hogan down in Maryland. You know, you have these folks who are kind of like just, again, center right uh, people. Mitt Romney, to an extent, he's probably a little bit more further to the right. Um, Brett Baer. Brett Bear is Brett, pretty center right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've got you've, you've got some there there. Then you've got kind of your traditional, um, what you call your your traditional conservatives, and those and and really the bulk of the party in a way is kind of this fringe of moderates, uh, this bulk of conservatives, and then this other group of just like Bigfoot hunters, just like. <laughs> Right. Just people who like listen to like these Internet randos and just buy everything they say. And I'm sorry, they exist. But like QAnon is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Like if you honestly like you if you wouldn't be listening to this if you believed it. But like like there are grown there are adults, adults who believe this. Right. There are adults who believe that the this election was rigged. It's a 7 million gap in the popular vote. You got to be kidding me. Like there is no amount of evidence that will convince these people that their perception of the universe is wrong. And and that's kind of what how the party exists today. And the great thing is in a proportional system, right? All the kooks could go and make their own party. It'd be great. You know? Yeah. They could all do that and and kind of do their thing. And the rest of government could function without the kooks. I don't so know. In my example, what if they're the 20%? Well, see, this is the great thing about it, right? Is like nobody is going to have to caucus with them. Like right now, the okay. Republicans, like the reason more Republicans didn't come out and congratulate Joe Biden is because the party is beholden to the kooks. Like they still have to cater to them. And they still have to like kind of pay deference to their farcical perception of the way things are because they don't have a means of allying. Does everybody have their fucking ringer on in this house right now? I have so many beeps and boops going on. It's like, I feel like I'm in a submarine. I hope you keep this, this stuff in here too. Cause it's like, <laughs> it, it's going to be part of the episode at this. Like we have, there's so many interruptions. You just have to keep it, okay. but Okay, but so 
If we had a multi-party system, right? So let's just say the kooks are 20%, the QAnon party, right? And they're all like about like shutting down the pizza shops to keep the satanic pedophilia ring that the Democrats have established in them from going on, right? And so they've got that agenda and they're bringing it to Washington and they're mad as hell. Well, the great news, right, is no party has to even pay them any mind because there's still 80% of America that doesn't care. Right. And 80 percent of America that doesn't have to worry about whether these people are going to harm their person's chances of getting into office. Whereas right now in Georgia, for example, that small 20 percent is the, the entire Senate. Right. The Senate, the balance of power in the U.S. Senate hangs in the Republicans party, in the Republican Party's ability to get these 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 people who live in this fantasy world to vote in a system that they believe is so corruptible that 7 million votes could be fabricated yeah it's amazing and so and so that's where we are today and 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 the reason we're there is because we have a first past opposed system you know the reason we're there is because i just have to win one more vote than second place to take office. And so all and and that automatically creates a system where people line up behind two parties. Um, and so as a result, now all I need to do is make sure that other party looks like the Antichrist. And so that's why we have this situation now where both parties are effectively held hostage by their own extremes. Because those extremes make a much more compelling view. And if you truly believe that that other party is ultimately going to bring the country down the road to ruin, then you're going to be a much different voter than I think the framers intended and than I think a a functioning democracy should have. Well, it's funny you mentioned extremes because one of the criticisms that I was able to find that some people have of proportional representation is that PR would potentially provide a way for extremists to get into office. Without a doubt. I, I, well, but but under at the same time, under the first past to post system, they say this would be unlikely to happen. But I, I think that's baloney because look at some of the people we have we have now. Yeah, no, it, it, the 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 extremes are going to find their way in there. I mean, like, I, I mean, I'll give you another one, somewhat controversial. I don't really feel people care that much about the abortion issue. Like, I really don't. I was raised. You know, I was raised in a, in a very pro-life household, right, where it was like the issue. Uh, but I really don't I, – I believe for the most part, if you talk to people about how abortions are conducted in the United States and you ask them kind of like, where do you fall? The majority aren't abortions in any circumstance or abortions under no circumstances. You know, the majority fall somewhere in between. But those people don't get a voice because you can't get people to fight over that, you know? Or like the gun issue, right? Which we've talked about and which we did, oh, yeah. you know, back in October, right? The yep. gun issue. It's, 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 you know, if you look, talk to the majority of Americans, they believe that, you know, some additional restrictions on firearm ownership are okay, but they also don't necessarily believe that everybody should have their AR-15 taken away from them, right? And, but again, you can't get people to fight over that. So there's this all or nothing uh, framework that we're thrown into. 
And, and, and it is an extreme framework. And so in my mind, yeah, like under a proportional representation system, you are going to have nuts. Like, don't like, absolutely. You're going to have people elected to office who believe things that are going to offend you. And that's just the way it is. That's democracy. They will not have enough force, in my opinion, to gain a majority you know, they won't, they certainly won't be able to enact their agenda and they won't be able to infect our political dialogue. You know, they will not, we won't be presented with as many all or nothing equations because it no longer benefits the parties because the parties are running where the majority of voters are and the majority of voters don't care yeah. about these things. They care about the economy, they care about healthcare, and they care about education. And if you go to every poll taken after every presidential election as far back as 1992. And the only reason I'm stopping at 1992 is that's as far back as I went. Healthcare, the economy, and education are always the top three issues. Always. Still are. I mean, think of your neighbor. Think yeah. of your family. I mean, I mean, who who doesn't want a good job and the ability to put food on the table mm-hmm. and and a good education for their child? Yeah. Pave the pave the road. You got to have the infrastructure there. Okay. Um, you know, give me the freedom to grow my business without polluting the lake. Aside from that back off, you know what I mean? It's yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, and and that's the, the beauty of this country and the thing, the fun, the beauty of this country and the interesting thing that I've heard from guests on this episode. So if you want to dig back, Trevor Barlow, uh, in uh, back in August, uh, David O'Sullivan, who was in October in the gun episode, um, you know, when I ask people, what is it about America? And I should say, first off, these are two people, David O'Sullivan, born and raised in Ireland, Trevor, Trevor Barlow, lived abroad for a while. When I asked them, like, what, what's good about America? They, they said the same thing. They said freedom. And it sounds cliche, but in this country, you just have the ability to live as you wish. And you, you, it's so tough to explain, but you just, you don't have it to the same degree any, anywhere else in the world. And, and, and so, yeah. So part of that is like, let me live as I wish. I don't want to hurt anyone. I don't want to do anything that's potentially going to cause long-term damage to society or the the environment or whatever, but just let me live as I wish. And, 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 and I, I, I think that the, political dialogue is such that we can't let people do that. Like think about how many people care about the Georgia Senate runoff right now who don't live in Georgia. There's probably more, more people. I, I, I would probably tell you there are more people who are going to donate to the Senate campaigns in Georgia than there are people who are actually going to vote in that runoff. Like, because for some reason we care, you know, I don't like, it was like all these people putting their money and effort into unseating Mitch McConnell. And it's like, I don't care. Like, that's who Kentucky's going to vote for. Like that's how they think. They like him. He represents Kentucky. What am I going to do? I don't agree with him on everything, but like it's you can't just tell Kentucky don't vote that way. You know? And but that's right. what we want to do. We want to project our sense of the way things should be on them. Yeah. And 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 that and and vice versa, same thing. Like, you know, the NRA would love nothing more than to have open carry instituted in Massachusetts. And it's like, that's just not where we are. We don't want it. Nope. Like, don't stop doing us favors, you know? Like, like right. we just we don't want it. And so, and and I don't understand why people can't 
somehow respect the fact that other people are going to want to think think differently and they're going to want to live a little differently. And as long as we're not doing anything that, again, causes long-term damage to somebody else or to this country or again to the environment, then like, let's just let them be. So if proportional representation has its drawbacks, does that mean that ranked choice is the answer? I think you, I think we should do both. In my ideal system, you, in my ideal system, uh, I shouldn't in, in my ideal system right now, um, if I would say it's a mixture of ranked choice voting and proportional representation, um, I rank choice voting is very interesting in the sense that it means that somebody needs to get a true majority or a truer majority than in first past the post. So it's certainly an interesting way to get there. Um, and again, to restate it for the folks who might be listening for the first time, you know, in rank choice voting, you, you order your candidates in the, in, in, in order of preference, or you vote for candidates in the order of preference, if your first choice doesn't get in, then your votes will go to second place. And if your second place vote, if your second place candidate doesn't get enough first choice votes to show up, then it goes to third, your third choice and so on. But the idea is ultimately your voice is heard. Um, and so that's a very interesting way to be able to vote without having to be strategic. So it's, you don't have to choose between the Green Party or the Democratic Party. You can vote green number one, Democrat number two. And arguably, if that system were in place uh, during the 2016 presidential elections, Hillary Clinton would have won because the margin of victory was uh, in part owned by the Greens. There, there's a debate there because the Libertarians got a significant vote and that could have shifted things. But, you know, b- bottom line is people wouldn't have had to wouldn't have had the feeling of throwing their vote away, so to speak. Right. Now, it failed in mass recently. Yeah, they, it actually, so it went, it got on the ballot and it fell short and it wasn't like, it wasn't like a, a, a resounding defeat. It was like a couple percentage points. It fell short. I think the reason not to kind of shift gears here, but I do think the reason the proportional system is so important is because even in a solely ranked choice environment, you are still going to ultimately have a two party duopoly. You know, it is still only going to be two major parties that ever get into office. You mean you mean in 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 practicality, not in theory, because yeah. if everybody if everybody voted for Jill Stein as mm-hmm. their number one or number two, then the major two parties would no longer be a. Yeah, factor, right? it's, I mean, but the the bigger issue and this kind of gets into some other things unique about the U.S. You know, if you look at the U.K. and Canada, for example, they're first past the post systems, but they do have a thriving multi-party democracy. And the reason being uh, is because they also have media laws that require political parties to get a voice. And in this country, the only reason we ever discuss or cover third party candidates is when it's in reference to. Uh, how they might affect the vote of the major party, you know? And so like you won't hear about the green party unless it's in reference to how that could handicap the Democrats. And so, and so that, that's a different dynamic. Whereas in, in Canada or the UK, they're presented as viable alternatives. And so as a result, they actually get seats in office, even with the first past the post system. Um, And again, it gets back to like what works best in the United States to try and enforce a fair, you know, and try to, to try and enforce 
uh, free and equal media access would be really would be very very challenging. Um, and and again, you know, create some potential issues uh, that uh, that that or create some 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 issues that I don't know if we're prepared to handle. Number one, uh, number two, it's like what's going to survive the courts as well. Um, it's, and it's a lot harder to, to win a battle of what people should say or what the media should say in the courts than it is to, um, than it is to adjust an electoral system. And, and I also, you know, and so I, I do think that, I do think the, the issue is, is that even if we have ranked choice voting and a two party duopoly, the, lobbyists and the special interests to use two cliche terms, you know, they're still going to roughly know who the players are. They're still going to know whose palms need to get greased in order to get their initiatives passed. And so you'll have less of an oligarchy, but you're still going to have an oligarchy. Um, and, and that's why I, I think you have to just open it up to competition. Let's use Massachusetts as an example here. Massachusetts has nine representatives, right? Uh, as of today, zero Republicans. Um, and again, approximately a third of the population votes Republican in any election. Uh, so in a proportional system, just again, if we were to take that vote and retrofit it uh, to a proportional system, now we'd have two to three Republicans being sent to Congress from Massachusetts. And again, the remainder would be Democrat. Um, that's just if we took the vote and applied it proportionately today. Um, now, there's an argument to be made that if it was a proportional system, more Republicans might turn out because now they know their vote's going to count. And or there's also an argument to be made that now you might have, you know, maybe one Green Party or one Libertarian or, or, or what have you. But now, like a smaller party actually has the ability to have a seat at the table and have a voice. And so it does a couple things, which is number one, uh, it, it, it sends more moderates into office because, you know, you could argue a Massachusetts Republican in a lot of cases is going to be a functional Democrat. I think I'm proof. You know, there's that. But then the second part is if neither major party is really is either a catering to a specific slice of the electorate or B, just isn't doing a good job, then there's some additional pressure there uh, for the potential for another party to emerge and take seats. So again, I'll, I'll use the Green Party just because they they probably have a, the most cohesive platform that that relates to another major party. But so you know, a great example is if the if enough voters don't feel the Democrats are doing enough work towards the environment. Well, then the, they can cast a vote for the Green Party. And now the Green Party has a seat in Congress. And now either the major party has to cater more to the Green Party agenda without alienating the center or, uh, or you know, they have to run under threat that they're always that they could potentially lose seats to the Green Party. Um, if we take the Libertarians as another example, right? Uh, the Republicans who kind of coined the have, have just use the phrase law and order to the nth degree, right? Well, now the libertarians don't necessarily like the level of surveillance that we've instituted in this country. They don't like the, um, they don't generally like our policies with the police and use of force in this country. So now you've got, you know, the Republicans are now losing seats to the libertarians. And so, you know, there's, there's that element of pressure where, 
the two major parties are always going to have that infrastructure to to their advantage. They're all like they're always going to be able to out campaign, outraise minor parties, and that's that's right. just the way it is. But they they're not just going to be able to run roughshod over the will of the people, which is what they're doing now. Now, Maine, where my cousin lives, who has great lobster, Maine uses ranked choice. Someone said that their 2018 congressional race shows why ranked choice isn't a, a good idea. This is a critic of ranked choice. And they, they said, allegedly, the candidate who won the most votes still lost because there were multiple rounds of tabulation and thousands of ballots were thrown out. I'm not sure if this was due to ranked choice method or improper handling of ballots. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of this? Have you heard yeah, of this? I, I know exactly that? which one you're talking about. So this was uh, congressional, the second congressional district in Maine. And there was a, uh, a candidate, the Republican candidate won, um, won the majority of first choice votes. Um, but he did not get to 50%. And so Democratic, uh, candidate, uh, Jared Golden, uh, Republican candidate, Bruce Poliquin, um, they came in, you know, first and second in terms of first choice votes. Jared Golden came in second, Bruce came in first, but neither had over 50% of the vote. And so when they took everybody's second choice into account, then Jared Golden won because Jared had more first and second choice voters than Bruce did, right? Yeah. And Pollock mm-hmm. did, right? And I, I don't know too much about ballots being thrown out. I'd imagine it was like if look, if it was an if it was a state's first ranked choice voting election or one of the first chances are there are gonna be some there's gonna be some confusion. There are gonna be some co- folks who miscast ballots. That um that can be rectified in the next election, you know? Um, but the, the fact that Jared Golden had more first and second choice votes than uh, Bruce Poliquin did shows that Bruce Poliquin really didn't have that solid of a majority. Bruce Poliquin was able to get his base excited, but wasn't able to service or wasn't able to get many more people than that. Um, excited about his candidacy. And so in my mind that it, the, this is why Republicans have been so leery of ranked choice voting is because of this one election. But to me, what it says is you got to campaign for more than your base. Bruce Poliquin was probably really good at getting Republicans in Maine excited, but not so many other people. Jared wow. Golden was obviously much better at not just getting his base, but also getting people who were apolitical. These are people who need to be pulled into the conversation. So regarding third parties, you've had a few people from the Green Party on the show and one person from the Reform Party. I don't recall anyone from the Libertarian Party has been on the yeah, show yet. Wasty Alpha Cody. Of course. Yeah. How could I forget? Right? How could I forget? If you haven't listened to the episode, ex-Rodeo Rider turned Libertarian political candidate, Wasty Alpha Cody. But go on. Sorry. It, it, it was a great show. I remember yeah. now. Yeah. But but the question is, do third parties have a certain appeal to you personally or are you fulfilling a mission of the show by presenting options to people besides the two major parties? 
more more the latter um i would say there there are things that the third parties are talking about that i that really resonate with me um that i think should get more attention but won't because of the 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 duopoly we have today um so with the 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 interesting thing is the greens and the libertarians both feel the same about america's military policy you know the fact we spend an inordinate amount of money on the military uh, and the return we get typically number one is people hating us and number two is a continuously rising body count in the form of these forever wars uh, and and I, I mean the the military we, we did a whole segment on the military back in November um, I don't even think I dug half as deep as, as I could have into just the amount of waste you know the amount we are just being fleeced um, the Green Party and Libertarians are also very critical of our surveillance state, uh, which is something that has thrived under administrations of different parties. Let's let's remember Ed Snowden escaped to Russia during Obama, <laughs> you know, um, and now it's just recently been revealed that what the government was doing was indeed illegal. So Ed Snowden did uncover illegal uh, activities going on. Um, so there really there there's there some things that they say there. Uh, there's some things about police, uh, the way we the way we use our criminal justice system and abuse it um, that I really agree with, and that isn't being talked about because neither major party will touch it. Um, so I really like that stuff. There's some stuff on the in the on the minor parties that I I can't get behind, and but I I don't think they should be denied a voice either. You know, I like. And again, like if they were, if they got, if they had a percentage of voice in Congress similar to what they should have, these issues would be talked about, but they're not, they never make it to the light of day uh, because of the way our system's structured. Well, the most popular third party right now is the Libertarian Party. And even they don't come close to the two majors um no. there's there, there's an idea that the third parties any third party will would steal votes away from the candidates but that doesn't appear to be a concern given the level of popularity and and so reason magazine had an article that that read uh quote not a single third party gubernatorial candidate got more votes than the margin between the top two candidates not even the libertarian candidate Donald Rainwater, who captured 12% in Indiana's gubernatorial race. This is the third consecutive election where libertarians have won the bronze medal. Libertarians now have a commanding lead over the Green Party. And yet, you can almost hear Coach Vince Lombardi saying, there is only one place in my game, and that's first place. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and I think for executive office it's going to be very difficult for a minor party to win like i yeah. i don't even think in a proportional representation system you'd see a green party president or a libertarian president i just don't what, it would just what be can they do to get their what can they is it just is it mass education volunteers spreading the word what can they do to get the yeah you know so in the parties i've talked to the big thing is just recruiting you know, and education, it's really getting out there and talking to voters. Um, they, the recent 
conversation I had with Barbara Dahlgren at the Wisconsin Green Party, you know, a lot of stuff she says resonates with voters of Wisconsin. They just can't get their word out. And now it's been so tainted. Their brand has been so tainted by uh, the, the results of the 2016 election that the Democrats are just out for blood. They don't want to see them. They, they want to just crush the Greens in Wisconsin. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, like I don't I, I, I personally think like they their role should be to keep doing what they're doing, you know, and 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 I think that if they had a chance to make an impact, if they had a chance to, if they had a reasonable chance of gaining seats in the house, this is, I'm just laser focused on the house. Um, then they would start to have a voice. They would start to have a seat at the table. You know, they need to get covered for more than just their ability to spoil an election. And that would create a much different dynamic for them. And I think they always should serve um, a, populace that exists outside of the center. Um, I, I, I think that that's a meaningful role for them. Uh, and, and because like I said before, it is going to bring up issues to the center that they might not have thought about before. I don't think a minor party should be disappointed if they're not winning executive offices, because those are really designed to be, uh, to, to really hit a much larger swath of voters. And I don't know how they'd be able to do that without diluting their own platform, you know? So like, I think if you're going to be, if you're going to be a party that's really innovative and really thinking of solutions that don't exist in the major parties, you're always going to be on the fringes to an extent. Um, exactly. You know, but that doesn't mean you don't deserve a voice. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't be talking about these ideas. And right now we're not. So getting the word out there, better communication is obviously one improvement that the third parties could make. But I wonder if the messaging itself, the image of the third parties is another improvement the third parties could make in order to gain popularity. For example, libertarian candidate Gary Johnson from 2016 um, believed, we, we talked earlier about campaign finance reform. He believed, quote, corporations should give as much money as they want as often as they choose to whomever they please. Mm-hmm. That is, most reasonable people would believe that is deeply flawed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know if they're going to gain any votes by me. I don't know if that's just his personal view or, or a party view, but, you know, they, they may not gain popularity if they maintain that position. He also stated about the minimum wage. Uh, minimum wage is, quote, a non-issue because hardly anyone works for a minimum wage. Nobody works for uh uh, just showing up on time and wearing clean clothes gets you above minimum wage, end quote. I don't know that the majority of people would align themselves with that with that statement. Yeah. And I think that that's going to be, and, and that's why there are minor parties, you know? Right. Um, there's, there's some stuff that they say that isn't necessarily going to appeal to the bulk of voters. You know, the, the, the reason I'm so pro electoral reform is I want to make sure that you know, people's, the public, that, that the House is representative of public opinion. Um, but the second part of that is to make sure that the things the third parties are saying that are appealing to most Americans get heard. And that was the final episode of 2020. 
a year, I think most of us would like to leave in the rear view. And before I sign off, at the risk of talking too much in an episode where I've already done a lot of talking, I want to leave you with some thoughts as we go into this new year. And you know, a lot of people have talked about 2020 being the worst year ever. And there seems to be this overwhelming feeling that all we need to do is to cross into 2021 and everything's going to be fine, which I think all of us would agree is a little naive. And the fact is, is the structural issues that got us here in the first place haven't been addressed and won't be addressed in just one year's time. You know, when I look at this year, I I really look at it more like a 1929, sort of a year of reckoning for a number of bad decisions that we've made in the past decades. And what we ought to think as we go crossing into this new year is what are the things we're going to do to address it? No surprise, for me, everything at its core lies in an unresponsive United States government, a U.S. government that is not subject to the will of its citizens as it was designed. And given the role the United States has in terms of being the currently the preeminent military power in the world, being the preeminent economic power in the world, holding the world's reserve currency right now, those decisions that we make are important for our own livelihood, but also guide those of many around us as well. And as always, my mission is going to stay the same. I repeated this over and over again, but this is the final decade where America will be run by a two-party duopoly that is beholden primarily to well-funded special interests. We are going to change the way elections are run. We are going to make the representatives in government more accountable to public opinion, and we are ultimately going to unwind a lot of the poor decisions and the power structures that have created the situation we have today. As always, I'm going to be bringing you electoral reform activists. I'm going to be bringing you minor party activists, and I'm going to be bringing you other interesting folks who are all offering different solutions as to how we can make this decade a better one and a pivotal one. Because getting back to the 1929 analogy I made earlier, it was a 15-year period before the structures that existed were upended and rebuilt sounder and stronger. And there was a lot of pain in between to say the least. I'd love it if we could avoid that. So I hope you'll join me on the journey. Big thanks to the big Gino, Jason Putney for all the work he's done getting rid of my ums and ahs throughout the year and, and for suggesting that we interview me for the final episode of the year. Really thankful for that. Big thanks to Adman Yaffe, our editorial advisor, for for helping us plot our course forward. And big thanks to the absent but not unnoticed Quellertack, Norway's finest metal band, possibly Scandinavia's finest, possibly the world. 
looking forward to seeing you in 2021. Happy New Year, all. This is your bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting, Dan Sally, signing off for the year. Happy New Year, everybody.